A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 61. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 21. Thebes. Part 1. We had so long been the sport of destiny that we hardly knew what to make of our good fortune when two days of sweet south wind carried us from Edfu to Luxor. We came back to find the old mooring-place alive with dahabiyas and gay with English and American colors. These two flags well-nigh divide the river. In every twenty-five boats one may fairly calculate upon an average of twelve English, nine American, two German, one Belgian, and one French. Of all of these, our American cousins, ever helpful, ever cordial, are pleasantest to meet. Their flag stands to me for a host of brave and generous and kindly associations. It brings back memories of many lands and many faces. It calls up echoes of friendly voices, some far distant, some, alas, silent. Wherefore, be it on the Nile or the Thames, or the high seas, or among Syrian camping-grounds, or drooping listlessly from the balconies of gloomy diplomatic haunts in continental cities. My heart warms to the stars and stripes whenever I see them. Our arrival brought all the dealers of Luxor to the surface. They waylaid and followed us wherever we went, while some of the better sort, grave men in long black robes and ample turbans, installed themselves on our lower deck and lived there for a fortnight. Go upstairs when one would, whether before breakfast in the morning or after dinner in the evening. There we always found them, patient, imperturbable, ready to rise up and salaam and produce from some hidden pocket a purse full of scarabs or a bundle of funerary statuettes. Some of these gentlemen were Arabs, some cops, all polite, plausible, and mendacious. Where Copt and Arab drive the same doubtful trade, it is not easy to define the shades of difference in their dealings. As workmen the Copts are perhaps the more artistic. As salesmen the Arabs are perhaps the less dishonest. Both sell more forgeries than genuine antiquities. Be the demand what it may, they are prepared to meet it. Tutmos is not too heavy, nor Cleopatra too light for them. Their carvings in old sycamore wood, their porcelain statuettes, their hieroglyphed limestone tablets, are executed with a skill that almost defies detection. As for genuine scarabs of the highest antiquity, they are turned out by the gross every season. Engraved, glazed, and administered to the turkeys in the form of balooses, they acquire by the simple process of digestion a degree of venerableness that is really charming. Side by side with the work of production goes on the work of excavation. The professed diggers colonize the western bank. They live rent-free among the tombs, drive donkeys or work by the day, and spend their nights searching for treasure. Some hundreds of families live in this grim way, spoiling the dead-and-gone Egyptians for a livelihood. Forgers, diggers, and dealers play, meanwhile, into one another's hands, and drive a roaring trade. Your dahabiyah, as I have just shown, is beset from the moment you moor till the moment you pull off again from shore. The boy who drives your donkey, the guide who pilots you among the tombs, the half-naked fella who flings down his hoe as you pass and runs beside you for a mile across the plain, have one and all an antica to dispose of. The turbaned official who comes, attended by his secretary and pipe-bearer, to pay you a visit of ceremony, 
warns you against imposition, and hints at genuine treasures to which he alone possesses the key. The gentlemanly native who sits next to you at dinner has a wonderful scarab in his pocket. In short, every man, woman, and child about the place is bent on selling a bargain, and the bargain, in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, is valuable in so far as it represents the industry of Luxor, but no farther. A good thing, of course, is to be had occasionally, but the good thing never comes to the surface as long as a market can be found for the bad one. It is only when the dealer finds he has to do with an inexperienced customer that he produces the best he has. Flourishing as it is, the trade of Luxor labors, however, under some uncomfortable restrictions. Private excavation being prohibited, the digger lives in dread of being found out by the governor. The forger, who has nothing to fear from the governor, lives in dread of being found out by the tourist. As for the dealer, whether he sells an antique or an imitation, he is equally liable to punishment. In the one case he commits an offense against the state, and in the other he obtains money under false presences. Meanwhile the governor deals out such even-handed justice as he can, and does his best to enforce the law on both sides of the river. By a curious accident, L. and the writer once actually penetrated into a forger's workshop. Not knowing that it had been abolished, we went to a certain house in which a certain consulate had once upon a time been located, and there knocked for admission. An old deaf fellaha opened the door, and after some hesitation showed us into a large, unfurnished room with three windows. In each window there stood a workman's bench strewn with scarabs, amulets, and funerary statuettes in every stage of progress. We examined these specimens with no little curiosity. Some were of wood, some were of limestone, some were partly colored. The colors and brushes were there, to say nothing of files, gravers, and little pointed tools like gimlets. A magnifying glass of the kind used by engravers lay in one of the window recesses. We also observed a small grindstone screwed to one of the benches and worked by a treadle while a massive fragment of mummy-case in a corner behind the door showed whence came the old sycamore wood for the wooden specimens. That three skilled workmen furnished with European tools had been busy in this room shortly before we were shown into it was perfectly clear. We concluded that they had just gone away to breakfast. Meanwhile we waited, expecting to be ushered into the presence of the consul. In about ten minutes, however, breathless with hurrying, arrived a well-dressed Arab whom we had never seen before. Distracted between his oriental politeness and his desire to get rid of us, he bowed us out precipitately, explaining that the house had changed owners, and that the power in question had ceased to be represented at Luxor. We heard him raiding the old woman savagely as soon as the door had closed behind us. I met that well-dressed Arab a day or two later, near the governor's house, and he immediately vanished round the nearest corner. The Bulak authorities keep a small gang of trained excavators always at work in the necropolis of Thebes. These men are superintended by the governor, and every mummy case discovered is forwarded to Bulak unopened. Thanks to the courtesy of the governor, we had the good fortune to be present one morning at the opening of a tomb. He sent to summon us just as we were going to breakfast. With what alacrity we manned the felucca, and how we ate our bread and butter, half in the boat and half on donkey-back, may easily be imagined. 
How well I remember that early morning ride across the western plain of Thebes, the young barley rippling for miles in the sun, the little water-channel running beside the path, the white butterflies circling in couples, the wayside grave with its tiny dolmen prayer-mat, its well and broken colour, inviting the passer-by to drink and pray, the wild vine that trailed along the wall, the vivid violet of the vetches that blossomed unbidden in the barley. We had the mounds and pylons of Medinet Habu to the left, the ruins of the Ramesseum to the right, the colossi of the plain and the rosy western mountains before us all the way. How the great statues glistened in the morning light! How they towered up against the soft blue sky! Battered and featureless, they sat in the old patient attitude, looking as if they mourned the vanished springs. We found the new tomb a few hundred yards in the rear of the Ramesseum. The diggers were in the pit, the governor and a few Arabs were looking on. The vault was lined with brickwork above, and cut square in the living rock below. We were just in time, for already, through the sand and rubble with which the grave had been filled in, there appeared an outline of something buried. The men, throwing spades and picks aside, now began scraping up the dust with their hands, and a mummy case gradually came to light. It was shaped to represent a body lying at length with the hands crossed upon the breast. Both hands and face were carved in high relief. The ground color of the sarcophagus was white, the surface covered with hieroglyph legends and somewhat coarsely painted figures of the four lesser gods of the dead. The face, like the hands, was colored a brownish-yellow and highly varnished. But for a little dimness of the gaudy hues, and a little flaking off of the surface here and there, the thing was as perfect as when it was placed in the ground. A small wooden box roughly put together lay at the feet of the mummy. This was taken out first, and handed to the governor, who put it aside without opening it. The mummy case was then raised upright, hoisted to the brink of the pit, and laid upon the ground. It gave one a kind of shock to see it first of all lying just as it had been left by the mourners, then hauled out by rude hands to be searched, unrolled, perhaps broken up as unworthy to occupy a corner in the Bulak collection. Once they are lodged and catalogued in a museum, one comes to look upon these things as specimens, and forgets that they were once living beings like ourselves. But this poor mummy looks startlingly human and pathetic lying at the bottom of its grave in the morning sunlight. After the sarcophagus had been lifted out, a small blue porcelain cup, a ball of the same material, and another little object shaped like a cherry were found in the debris. The last was hollow, and contained something that rattled when shaken. The mummy, the wooden box, and these porcelain toys were then removed to a stable close by, and the excavators, having laid bare what looked like the mouth of a bricked-up tunnel in the side of the tomb, fell to work again immediately. A second vault, perhaps a chain of vaults, it was thought would now be discovered. We went away, meanwhile, for a few hours, and saw some of the famous painted tombs in that part of the mountainside just above which goes by the name of Sheikh Abd el-Kurna. It was a hot climb, the sun blazing overhead, the cliffs reflecting light and heat, the white debris glaring underfoot. Some of the tombs here are excavated in terraces, and look from a distance like rows of pigeon-holes. Others are pierced in solitary ledges of rock, 
many are difficult of access, all are intolerably hot and oppressive. They were numbered half a century ago by the late Sir Gardner Wilkinson, and the numbers are still there. We went that morning into fourteen, sixteen, seventeen, and thirty-five. As a child, the manners and customs of the ancient Egyptians had shared my affections with the Arabian Nights. I had read every line of the old six-volume edition over and over again. I knew every one of the six hundred illustrations by heart. Now I suddenly found myself in the midst of old and half-forgotten friends. Every subject on these wonderful walls was already familiar to me. Only the framework, only the colouring, only the sand underfoot, only the mountain slope outside were new and strange. It seemed to me that I had met all these kindly brown people years and years ago, perhaps in some previous stage of existence, that I had walked with them in their gardens, listened at the music of their lutes and tambourines, pledged them at their feasts. Here is the funeral procession that I know so well, and the trial scene after death, where the mummy stands upright in the presence of Osiris, and sees his heart weighed in the balance. Here is that well-remembered old fowler crouching in the rushes with his basket of decoys. One withered hand is lifted to his mouth, his lips frame the call, his thin hair blows in the breeze. I see now that he has placed himself to the leeward of the game, but that subtlety escaped me in the reading days of my youth. Yonder I recognize a sculptor's studio into which I frequently peeped at that time. His men are at work as actively as ever, but I marvel that they have not yet finished polishing the surface of that red granite colossus. This patient angler, still waiting for a bite, is another old acquaintance, and yonder, I declare, is that evening party at which I was so often an imaginary guest. Is the feast not yet over? Has that late-comer whom we saw hurrying along just now in a neighbouring corridor not yet arrived? Will the musicians never play to the end of their concerto? Are those ladies still so deeply interested in the patterns of one another's earrings? It seems to me that the world has been standing still in here for these last five-and-thirty years. Did I say five-and-thirty? Ah, me! I think we must multiply it by ten, and then by ten again, ere we come to the right figure. These people lived in the time of the Tutmos and the Amenhoteps, a time upon which Rameses the Great looked back as we look back to the days of the Tudors and Stuarts. From the tombs above we went back to the excavations below. The bricked-up opening had led, as the diggers expected, into a second vault, and another mummy-case, half crushed by a fall of debris, had just been taken out. A third was found later in the afternoon. Curiously enough, they were all three mummies of women. The governor was taking his luncheon with the first mummy in the recesses of the stable, which had been a fine tomb once, but reeked now with manure. He sat on a rug, cross-legged with a bowl of sour milk before him and a tray of most uninviting little cakes. He invited me to a seat on his rug, handed me his own spoon, and did the honours of the stable as pleasantly as if it had been a palace. I asked him why the excavators, instead of working among these second-class graves, were not set to search for the tombs of the kings of the eighteenth dynasty, supposed to be waiting discovery in a certain valley called the Valley of the West. He shook his head. The way to the Valley of the West, he said, was long and difficult. Men working there must encamp upon the spot, 
and merely to supply them with water would be no easy matter. He was allowed, in fact, only a sum sufficient for the wages of fifty excavators, and to attack the valley of the west with less than two hundred would be useless. End of section 61